I am Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in New Mexico this week. The the land of enchantment, I believe is the does that sound right? I have no freaking clue what New Mexico is, honestly. I really don't. I'm pretty sure it's the land of enchantment. Sorry, all of my friends who I know live in New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, land of enchantment, I believe, is the license plate logo and the state motto for New Mexico. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure not sure why, but I know it's probably because it has a very diverse landscape. That's true, it does. I always wanted to go to New Mexico because it just looks like really cool. But I've I've never had the chance to get out there. I haven't either, although I have a lot of friends and coworkers who who have lived in New Mexico or are still in New Mexico, but um I do want to get out to Santa Fe because Santa Fe seems like a pretty cool, pretty cool place. Santa Fe does seem cool. I just want to explore the desert. I do have some fun facts about New Mexico, the land of enchantment. Awesome. Lay them on me. All right. I think you're going to dig these because they're kind of, they're kind of, I found them super interesting. All right. First, speaking of Santa Fe, did you know that Santa Fe is actually the state capital with the highest elevation? I did not. Yeah, its its elevation is an average of 7,000 feet above sea level. So it's actually higher than where you would think the highest state capital would be, like, you know, Denver. You'd figure the highest state capital would be, like, in, you know, the Rockies. But, yeah, it's actually Santa Fe, which is kind of in the Rockies, but not the main part of the Rockies we think of for, like, Colorado. Yeah. Uh, New Mexico has more PhDs per capita than any other state. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, neither did I. And it turns out the main reason there's so many folks who have advanced degrees in New Mexico is because of the government. Lots of places in New Mexico are home to laboratories. For example, Albuquerque hosts the Sandia National Lab- Laboratories. And there's a number of other research facilities like Los Alamos National Laboratory. Intel has facilities in New Mexico. And a lot of the large land management agencies, like the Forest Service and the National Park Service, also employ people with PhDs in you know, forestry and conservation to keep those organizations running. Okay, that explains yeah. some of it then. I like it. Uh, New Mexico is the only state that has an official state question. What is the question? That question is green or red? What? So this is something I know from from chatting with New Mexicans. Uh, It always refers to what type of chili preference you want. Not necessarily like chili, like the meat dish that we all know and love. It's actually the chili that you would put on top of, say, enchiladas or a breakfast burrito. So your choice is either red or green. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I got that. But at first I thought you were saying like chili, like, you know. Like actual, like, you know, chili that I think of that you eat over rice. But then, yeah, then I got it. Yep, your, your, your chili sauce preference, which I kind of love. <laughs> That's interesting. Did you know you can see five different states from New Mexico? Yes, I did. That's cool. I didn't know that. There is a volcano, the Capulin Volcano National Monument, which towers over the edge of the Great Plains. It's in the northeastern corner of New Mexico. It's basically extinct, which is good. And it's a cinder cone. 
So it's become this really famous landmark on the, the Santa Fe Trail. Today, when you drive to the top of the cone, it's an 8,000 foot elevation and it has this amazing view that lets you see Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, and New Mexico. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Sounds so beautiful. I saw some pictures online because I was really curious about what a extinct volcano might look like. and It just looks absolutely stunning. I'm going to have to check it out after this. I think it's where the enchantment in the land of enchantment begins. It could be. It sounds very mm-hmm. enchanting to me. I also discovered that New Mexico has been inhabited for a really, really long time. For example, the Taos Pueblo has been inhabited for over a thousand years. Uh, People of the Taos Pueblo have lived in this kind of surreal looking multi-story apartment like adobe town. Mm -hmm. It's really cool looking. Yes, it's beautiful. There are historical archaeological records that show that people have been inhabiting the area of New Mexico as far back as 5,000 years ago. Uh, Around 1,000 AD, however, the current adobe dwellings that are part of the Taos Pueblo were constructed. And it's still uh, a thriving community to this day, which is kind of cool. That's awesome. This next fact kind of blew my mind in the terms of like how I view American history in the scope of world history. So Santa Fe, the capital of New Mexico, was founded 10 years before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. Wow. Right? That is weird. Very weird. Because when you think of like America's like founding, you always think about like the pilgrims and new england but turns out we can't forget that you know europeans were operating in the new world um including the spanish who were in new mexico long before the pilgrims showed up on the mayflower Mm -hmm. Uh, not only is santa fe the oldest european city west of the mississippi river it's the oldest capital city in america because its founding date is officially listed as 1610 Hmm. okay wow and then the thing that I think is kind of funny in an ironic, a lot more set way, is that New Mexico is one of the youngest American states, despite having the oldest capital in North America. <laughs> wow, that's that's cr- kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, so basically, New Mexico didn't become a state until uh, 1912. Okay. And it is interesting because it kind of met all the criteria for statehood for decades before it entered the union. But there was this fear of letting New Mexico into the U.S. versus being like a territory because it's a, it was such a heavily Catholic and Hispanic populated area mm-hmm. that, you know, all of the white supremacists kind of got nervous about letting them into America. So there you have it. Interesting. Yeah, I knew that we got like New Mexico... Um... After the Mexican-American War, Mm -hmm. that part I knew. But yeah, everything else, not so much. Yeah. And two last facts for you. Uh, This one I thought, again, blew my freaking mind about New Mexico. So New Mexico is not named after Mexico the country. Huh. (laughs) So New Mexico has been called New Mexico since 1563. Don Francisco de Ilbara, who was the governor of a new Spanish province, thought that he saw Indian people in the territory that reminded him of the Aztecs. Okay. 
And he kind of thought of it as an area of New Mexico because the the area where the Spanish had encountered the Aztecs around Tenochtitlan was often referred to as Mexico by the uh, indigenous people, the, the Aztecs. So he's like, oh, it's like a New Mexico. And that's why he named it Mexico. Meanwhile, the country of Mexico was still known as New Spain until it got its independence from Spain in 1821. So kind of kind of blows your mind, right? That New Mexico wow. predates Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. I never, ever knew that. Right? I feel like New Mexico has like toppled a bunch of like uh, assumptions I have about like history. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yes. Kind of great. I love wow. it. Wow. Things you've been thinking wrong the entire time. Wow. Exactly. Learning this stuff every day. And then my last fun fact for you is super cool. And this is something I would love to see in person one day uh, when I uh, get the opportunity to travel to New Mexico. But uh, every October, over 500 hot air balloons and tens of thousands of hot air balloon aficionados gather in Albuquerque for the International Balloon Fiesta, which began in 1972 and has been steadily growing every year. It is now the largest hot air balloon festival in the world. Um, a lot. One reason that pilots love to bring their hot air balloons to Albuquerque is because of this thing called the box. It's this set of really, really predictable wind patterns that set in as the year creeps towards autumn and, and winter kind of settles over the Rio Grande. The box helps balloons to fly north at low elevations and then cruise back south at higher elevations. So it's a really easy area to pilot in the fall. Um, if you ever have seen anything where it's just like 100 hot, hot air balloons in the air or 500 hot, hot air balloons in the air across like the like dry desert landscape of Albuquerque, it's just so cool looking. Um, I definitely know folks who travel to Albuquerque, who live in Albuquerque, who participate in the hot air uh, balloon fiesta. And uh, it's it's pretty awesome to see some of the photos and stuff that they post that's pretty cool wow okay yeah i like it i know like the lantern festivals and stuff that some places have are really cool and i'd like to go to that so this seems like something else i might enjoy yeah yeah good old abq so those are my fun facts for new mexico well thank you nicole i feel like i learned a lot (laughs) (laughs) i know right like you're welcome the more you know, star is now shooting over your head. And uh... <laughs> now you can teach me something horrifying about human nature with your true crime story, hopefully. Oh, and it's it's quite horrifying. You will not be disappointed, let me tell you. <laughs> um, so my story for this week actually takes place not only in New Mexico, but technically in four different states at once. Mm. This area is known as Four Corners, and it's where New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and Utah all meet. Okay, so where all the squares come together. Gotcha. Exactly. Land of the squaresies. <laughs> um, there's this 25,000-mile expanse of desert there that is home to several Native American tribes, including Navajo, Ute, Zuni, and Hopi. Uh, it has the largest Native American population of the entire United States. And if you are wondering what the most populous city was in the Four Corners area, that would be Farmington, New Mexico with a population of 45,877 as of the 2010 census. Besides the beautiful desert landscape that can be found in Four Corners, there are a lot of places to visit in this area, 
most of them being historical or sacred to the Native American inhabitants. Another fun fact, six governments have jurisdictional boundaries here, according to Wikipedia, including the states of Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado, of course, plus two tribal governments, the Navajo Nation and the Ute Tribe. And if you're sensing a theme here, that's because I finally found a well-documented case involving Native Americans, so I guess they do exist. This is the story of Betty Lee. Okay. Betty Lee was a 36-year-old woman from Shiprock, New Mexico, which is a census-designated place on the Navajo Reservation. Betty herself was Navajo, which should come as no surprise since I was happy that I finally found a case where I could cover that I could cover to give a little spotlight to the community when all we see these days is white woman in trouble in the news, just like that scene from Scary Movie. True, true. They just get no coverage in the media, and even though we don't reach a whole lot of people with our podcast, we do have some wonderful, dedicated listeners, so I feel that you know any exposure helps. Betty was also a single mother of five children and was also a college student. Her niece said that she went back to school so that she could give her children a better life. She said uh, that her children were the most important thing to her in her life as well. Shiprock is about 30 miles away from Four Corners. Um, So on the night leading up to her murder, Betty had been in a bar in town called The Turnaround, which weirdly enough is what two of my friends called a diner that I used to go to called The Turn-In because they hated it and they said that we should have just (laughs) turned around. Rude. Anyway, she was at the turnaround with two of her friends, and their names were Tina and Gloria. At the bar, they had met two men, one named Johnny Miller, and the other one was just called Pretty Boy. And let me tell you, the actor that got to play him for Forensic Files was not a very pretty boy. (laughs) Miscast. Yes. So after a few drinks, Pretty Boy and Johnny asked the girls if they wanted to leave with them and, quote, continue the party somewhere else, end quote which I can only assume would mean in their pants. Mm -hmm. Sounds about right. Yep. Tina and Gloria were apparently all for this, but Betty wasn't so sure. According to the episode that I watched, Betty was kind of the third wheel in this scenario, so I don't know if she was actually invited or not, but she begged her friends not to go back to the motel with these guys uh, they had just met, but her friends were basically like, hey, don't cock block, we're getting some tonight. And they end up leaving without her in a red pickup truck with these two guys, which I don't know about you, Nicole, but I've been in this situation before and it's a really shitty feeling. It is. And also hotel parties are like super sketchy no matter where you are. Yeah. There's only very few exceptions for, for hotel parties that aren't sketchy. And like the worst part of all this was that this left Betty with no ride home. All right. That's kind of messed up to do to your friend. Yeah completely abandoned and i've been in that exact situation and it sucks i mean not the exact situation that's about to happen but this one so far yes she went to a convenience store which i assume was like down the road so she could use the payphone and if you're wondering this happened in 2000 so there were still payphones around she called the dispatch center and asked to be connected to her brother who was a he was with the navajo nation police um her call didn't go through however And there was a witness that night in the convenience store who saw her and said she hung up the phone and just started sobbing. The witness looked away, and the next thing she knew, Betty was gone. Oh. 
The next day, an electrical worker was out in the desert in Four Corners and noticed some blood on the road. And there in the bushes was Betty's body. When police made it onto the scene, they immediately knew Betty had been murdered. She had been stabbed several times in the chest and also bludgeoned. Here's the weird part, though. They also found a knife and a sledgehammer nearby, which, isn't it rule number one for killers that they shouldn't just leave the murder weapon lying around? Yeah, I, I guess that's kind of a like first step of not getting caught, right, is dispose of the, the murder weapon. <laughs> yeah, dispose of the murder weapon, dispose of the body. It's harder to convict that way, you know? But weirder still, whoever killed Betty could possibly have murdered before, according to police. Hmm. Why did they think that? They had also found the body of Donald Sosi in that same area, maybe just 10 miles away. He was also a Native American, and he had been both beaten and stabbed to death. So same everything so far. Interesting. This led them to believe there may have been a serial killer on the loose in this part of New Mexico who was dumping bodies in the desert. The weapons they had found near the body matched the injuries Betty had received, indicating that those were indeed the murder weapons. Luckily, an examination showed that Betty hadn't been raped before her death, so I guess thank God for small favors. I suppose. They did a talk screen as well, which showed that she had alcohol in her system, which led police fairly quickly to the bar, and they were able to piece together what had happened there the night before. They did check into her friends and the men they left with, and they all had each other as alibis. They went to a motel, like I had said, and stayed there until morning. When looking over the murder weapons, they found no prints, which is upsetting. But on the road where they found the blood, they were able to see some tire tracks and shoe impressions from not one, not two, but three people. Okay, that's a clue. That's a good one. That's something, right? Exactly. Yes, something to go on. So from these shoe prints, they were able to tell what size and what kind of shoes both pe- all the people were wearing. Uh, the first was a man's boot and was size 13. Okay. And the second was Converse in a size 10. The third and final set of shoe impressions were women's sandals that matched the ones that Betty was wearing. Okay. The tire marks were also a bit weird because... They were from a car, not a truck, so that helps again rule out the two guys from the bar. But the weird part here is that there were three different tread patterns. I know, like, when replacing tires, if you replace one, you usually want to replace two of them instead to even things out. So this Mm -hmm. was just weird for investigators as well, seeing three different tire patterns. They followed the tracks, which led down the road a bit, and then into the desert more. It took police about four hours or so to follow these tracks. They would crisscross each other or disappear and reappear. The police said that they had to get out of their car, walk for a little, until they found the tracks again, and just repeat this for three or four hours. Wow. They followed the trail to where they had stopped, which was at a place where they found several different sets of tire impressions. From several different cars. Okay. When scouting the area, they ended up finding something strange. Here, in the middle of nowhere out in the desert, there was a cell phone lying on the ground. And it looked like it had been freshly dropped, too. No dust, no signs of weather damage, etc. 
obviously police were hoping this phone belonged to the killer, or killers as the case seemed to be, from the shoe impressions. They were able to trace the phone back to a man named Charlie Bergen. He was a tow truck driver. Police were like, Charlie, you got some splaining to do. (laughs) Charlie said he didn't know anything about the murder, but he could explain the tire tracks. Charlie went on to tell the police a car had gotten stuck in the sand last night, and then the owner called his father to get him out. Then his father also got stuck, but it gets better. They call a tow truck for help, but then the tow truck also gets stuck. (laughs) And finally, Charlie is called, and he gets them all out. With his super tow truck? Like, what the hell? I I guess so. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Seems kind of a thin story there, Charlie, but okay. It's real weird, and it gets weirder. Just wait. So Charlie was kind of funny when talking about this on Forensic Files, and he said, I've been doing this 17 years, and you see people do some really stupid things. People have weird ways. It's none of my business what they do. I just go on and towed them out and did my thing. So, all right, Charlie. Charlie's explanation for how his phone got there seemed a little sketchy to me, though. Like, this whole story seems bizarre as shit, but the phone thing seems sketchy. I'm not in any way suggesting anything, but it seems weird. So he said his wife called him when he was trying to get them out, and she was making him angry, so he just threw his phone away. He just chucked it into the desert. I mean, to be fair, it is 2000, so I feel like... They weren't that expensive, I guess. Yeah, they weren't that expensive, (laughs) and you could replace a phone pretty darn easily. So if you did get mad and chuck it, you're like, ah, whatever. Yeah, it looked like some, like, LG flip phone. Um. But police weren't sure what to believe at this point, because just like we're feeling now, they were like, dude, this is a batshit crazy story. Mm -hmm. I have no clue if he's telling the truth, but for now, let's just roll with it. So they talked to Charlie some more, and it turned out that the driver had paid for the tow by check. So now they had a name and also a new lead. The man's name was Bobby Fry. He was a 31-year-old man who worked construction, but that wasn't the most interesting thing about Bobby. He also had a criminal record. I don't know what that criminal record was because they never mentioned it, and I did not find it anywhere, but he had a criminal record. (laughs) So Charlie told police that Bobby seemed nervous and that he did not want either tow truck driver in his vehicle. They go and talk to Bobby, who confirms Charlie's version of events, surprisingly enough, but says, of course, that he knew nothing about no murdered lady. <laughs> he did allow police to search his house, however, so that's good at least. Bobby had a very messy room, according to the police, but they were able to find a few suspicious things, including size 13 boots. Uh-oh. As for the other set of footprints, there may have also been a lead on that, since Bobby admitted that his friend Les Eng was with him on the night of Betty's murder. Of course, this meant that police had to go over and search his home as well, which they did, and they found a pair of, guess what, black Converse in a size 10. Hmm. So what are we thinking, Nicole? Yeah. Not looking good for Bobby and his buddy. (laughs) Exactly. So from the home of Bobby Fry, they also took a shirt they thought was the one that he was wearing 
that night, which I'm actually jealous of because it's a Misfits t-shirt and every Misfits t-shirt I owned has since been put out to pasture. So, hey, if it still exists and isn't evidence any longer, I will take it. (laughs) They gave the shirt to a blood spatter expert who checked it under enhanced lighting. And they were able to find small blood droplets, which, I mean, if he wore it to a Misfits concert and was in the pit, that could explain that. But since this is a story of murder, that's probably not the case. Mm -hmm. The same blood droplets were on his boots as well, indicating medium impact blood spatter, leading investigators to believe that he was the one with the sledgehammer. Interesting. Okay. That makes that makes sense, I guess. If like yeah. they were trying they had two murder weapons, so they can kind of be like, all right, the medium velocity versus like, you know, a high velocity that you get from like a stabbing action, right? Exactly. They were also able to find blood and sand embedded in the shoulder of this shirt. So maybe I don't want it as much anymore. But anyway, This painted a pretty clear picture that Bobby was indeed the one with the sledgehammer since it's usually rested on the shoulder because of the weight. Makes perfect sense, right? Yeah, totally. No blood at all was found on Les's clothing or shoes, however. Uh, They did find a blood transfer pattern on his shoes. Hmm. And I'm first going to explain what the difference is here because although there might be a blood spatter expert listening, probably not. And I know neither of us have that training, so here we go. When someone is stabbed, bludgeoned, etc., there would be droplets or things like that due to spatter. However, if you come in contact with it later, it's a transfer pattern, which is more like a brushing up against it. So it's more of like a swipe or a smear. Mm -hmm. So they can tell the difference by looking at it. Um, So what all this means is that there's a good chance Les wasn't present for the murder. But he helped move the body after. Interesting. They tested the blood they found against Betty's DNA, and it was a match. No surprise there. No surprise, yeah. yeah. They also found blood in the car, as well as an earring that belonged to Betty, which is also pretty damning. And we can't forget the weird tire thing from earlier, right? Yeah, with the three different types of tires, presumably, on, on one car. Yes. Well, all those tire impressions match Bobby's car as well. Bobby Fry is a murderer. <laughs> yes, there's there's no doubt about it right now. With because like, what are the odds of someone else having the exact same you know three different tires on their car? You know exactly. Yeah. So now they have the body. We have the murder weapons, and we even have the suspects. But why did they do it? And why was Betty Lee both stabbed and bludgeoned? What transpired that night? Well, police wanted to know just as bad as we all do. So they interrogated the suspects. While Bobby didn't have much to say and denied any involvement, Les wasn't such a smooth criminal, and he sang. According to what Les said during the interrogation, Bobby was pissed off about something earlier in the night and was looking for someone to take that anger out on. He had just gotten into a bar fight earlier that night, and they were driving by and saw Betty Lee crying by the payphone. They offered her a ride with Bobby saying, I can't, sta- I can't stand to see a woman cry. We'll give you a ride. Oh, what a nice guy, Bobby. Thank you for that. So sometime after leaving the convenience store parking lot, Bobby stopped the car, pulled Betty out, and tried to rape her, but she fought back. 
He'd had a knife on him and became angry that she was fighting him, and he began stabbing her with it. He then took the sledgehammer, which was in his car for some reason, but he did work construction, so maybe maybe that's why. I don't know. But he started beating her with it then. So after this, both Les and Bobby carried her body into the bushes and decided to go for a joyride, which to me is a sign of a psychopath. Right? No remorse. Like... Yeah. No remorse. Complete disconnect from the events that just transpired. He's obviously not right in the head at all. And would definitely do this kind of thing again, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, that's when they get stuck in the sand, which led to all the stuck cars and Charlie showing up and throwing his cell phone like a weirdo. (laughs) However, it was a good thing that he did or else the police might have never been able to solve this crime. I know. Talk about like a weird turn of events that led to Betty's killers being brought to justice. Like, Right. He even said he's like, you know, when she called me, I was like, oh, come on. What do you want now? You're always so horrible, you know, or something along those lines. <laughs> and I'm just like, God, Charlie, just shut up and stop talking bad about your wife. And he's like, but that was the best phone call I ever received. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, yeah, that is that is what happened. Um. During trial, Les testified against Bobby and received a plea deal where he was to serve 40 years in prison. Bobby got life in prison. Wow. 40 years. Mm -mm. Yeah. And just like an infomercial, I will say, but wait, there's more. There's more. Okay. Yes. Later, Bobby was also convicted of three more murders, including the murder of Donald Sosi, which I hinted at earlier in the story. But Donald's murder, yeah, and Donald's murder wasn't his first. That would be back in 1996 when he was trying to rob a head shop in Farmington called Eclectic. He didn't want any witnesses, so he murdered two men. Their names were Joseph Fleming and Matthew Trecker. Both were nearly decapitated, according to one of my sources. Holy shit. Yep. As far as the murder of Donald Sosi, it's eerily similar to Betty's murder. He and Les picked Donald up at the bar and offered him a ride where they lured him out to the desert, robbed him, and beat him with a shovel and a broomstick until he was dead and disposed of the body by throwing it off a cliff. Wow. He tried to appeal but failed. And although my source was not specific, I believe the appeal was for Betty's murder. Mm -hmm. He's serving three life sentences and is on death row, but his lawyer keeps getting the date pushed back for execution. As of the date of the article that I read, his execution had been on hold for 10 years, which would have been since 2008. Hmm. The article also quoted him as saying, there's nothing I've done that God hasn't forgiven me for. Dude, fuck off. Seriously. Wow. How about Betty's five fucking children that you orphaned? Like Exactly. You've, you've never even showed a morsel of remorse. It all just makes me so mad, but not as mad as the final bit of information I'm going to give you, which had me freaking out and screaming for about 10 minutes. I even had to call my mom to complain about it. <laughs> okay. Lay it on me. And then while making meatballs, I was still screaming about it. You're going to have some angry meatballs later, man. That's oh, no, yeah, should, I know. You shouldn't cook your emotions into your food. 
<laughs> Those are my hate meatballs. Um, <laughs> in 2019, they decided to vacate his death penalty, saying that the punishment did not match the crime. Oh. How? How on earth he murdered four people violently for no other reason than that he enjoys doing so? The victims can't have their lives back. The families can't get their loved ones back. It just makes no sense to me. What do you think? He's still in prison, though, right? He's still, thank God he's still in prison. Yes. I guess my question, so my first question would be, did vacating the death penalty change his, like, life sentences at all? Which I don't think it did, because he had, like, three, right? He had three. Yeah. So, so I'm not sure if, like, the whole charges for her were vacated or just the death sentence. So I'm not sure if he's down to, like, two life sentences. I mean, he's still going to remain in jail for the rest of his life, hopefully. But his lawyers are crafty, and they might even get him out of that. Who knows? Yeah, I almost feel that I prefer to have him rotting in jail because it's more of a poignant punishment for him to have to suffer and rot away. True, death can be too easy. Exactly. I almost would feel like for somebody who has such a lack of regard for anybody else other than himself and his his feelings Mm -hmm. and an absolute disregard for human life. I feel that the death penalty wouldn't really even matter. I feel like he'd be getting off too easy. So that's just my opinion. I I feel like when someone like Bobby Fry is punished, it's really hard to sort of say, hey, this person can be rehabilitated because I doubt it. Oh, he can't. No. Mm -mm. Right. So I think the only choice is to lock this person away for the rest of their life. prison, Prison is meant for rehabilitation. And you can't really rehabilitate a serial killer nine times out of ten. Someone who commits a crime of passion, they're probably not going to do it again. Someone Mm -hmm. who kills for the joy of killing, they're going to do it again. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like, I don't know, I'm just a, I am not a proponent in most cases of the death penalty, just because I feel like it's a, a step too far for the government to take in some cases so it can be definitely because like you know how many times have they gotten it wrong exactly not that i'm saying that they would get it wrong in bobby fry's case but not at all i feel like for him a more fitting punishment is like rotting away in prison for the rest of his natural life i always say that i don't want to be on a jury because like i i don't know like i can't be like beyond a reasonable doubt you know this person's guilty in this case there's no reasonable doubt whatsoever He's especially, guilty. especially not for Betty's murder. Right? No, not at all. Yeah, they have him dead to rights on that one. But I just, I'm so pissed off. They're like, well, the punishment does not match the crime. He took four lives. Well, it also makes me wonder, like, what what crime would match the punishment for the death penalty in New Mexico? You know yeah, what I mean? Right? Yeah, exactly. Like they're they're very wishy washy on the death penalty in New Mexico, from my understanding of the law over there. Mm. Like, I think they still have it, but they're just. But like most of the time they don't really use it. Gotcha. Is what I pretty much gathered from my research. But I just, I was so mad, Nicole. I was so mad. I can hear still, it in your so voice mad. still. Yeah. I'm just still angry. Cause like, you know, it's just, uh, her poor family and yeah. everyone else's families of, you know, the people that he murdered. Oh, well, anyway, my sources for this week were Wikipedia a Forensic Files episode called Four on the Floor, cart-blanche.org, 
krqe.com, lcsun-news.com, and daily-times.com. Lots of dashes in there this time. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for that story, Eden. I enjoyed it, even though it did, again, teach me something horrific about human nature and how some people just fucking suck. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) When we come back, I will remind you that even after death, sometimes people are lame and suck. Oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) There's always hope. And uh, there is a little twist of uh, some some heroic actions in my story as well. So fun. Okay. Well, let's take a little rage break while I calm down. And then and then we can have the news and your story. Sounds good. Sounds good. And we're back. I hope you didn't miss us too hard. Oh, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do have a news story, and it's funny because it's ironic. Like real irony or like a Las Marcet irony? Um, Kind of a mix between the two, I guess, a little bit. It's not quite real irony, but it's close. Sorry I keep bringing that up, but I was listening to Jagged Pill this week, and I was like, oh, yeah, ironic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm." Mm Mm-hmm. That's called coincidence, Alanis. Uh, yeah. <laughs> From your lips to her heart, hopefully. <laughs> I still love her, and Jagged Little Pill is still a great album. Agreed. So the news story I have, the headline is, oh, well, it comes from comicsans.com, and the headline is, Missouri dad who fought to get LGBTQ plus books banned from, chi- from school arrested for child molestation. Ugh. Gross. Yet. Of course. Of course. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? You know what's on the gay agenda? Protecting children. That's what's on the fucking gay agenda. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. So a 29-year-old father from Kansas City, Missouri, who advocated for the banning of books containing LGBTQ plus material, was arrested on charges of child molestation. Ryan Utterback who has previously spoken out against North Kansas City School District libraries carrying books that include, yeah, the whole alphabet, uh, not saying it again. The Rainbow Alphabet, got it. <laughs> the Rainbow Mafia um, is facing felony charges for, molest- for child molestation, misdemeanor domestic assault, and furnishing pornographic material to a child. Oh, yeah, you're real worried about keeping kids safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Utterback has pleaded not guilty and was on bond prior to appearing in Thursday's court hearing at the Clay County Courthouse. According to KMBC, a probable cause statement alleged Utterback sexually assaulted a child under the age of 12 in December 2020. In a separate incident from 2020, Utterback made physical contact with a 14-year-old who said it was uncomfortable and they didn't like it at all. According to another probable cause statement, Utterback showed cell phone footage of pornography to a four-year-old child. Jesus Christ. What is wrong with him? I mean. Yeah. I mean, a lot. A lot, clearly. (laughs) The news station investigated Utterback's case and found he attended several school board meetings advocating for the banning of certain books containing LGBTQ plus content, calling it sexual material inappropriate for children. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he's an expert on that, clearly. Absolutely. Utterback attended one of these meetings back in November, at which students spoke in favor of not banning books containing the content. 
He told the news outlet at the time he acknowledged students' concerns, but held firm in his conviction to support the book ban. You know, I definitely understand their struggles. It's not lost on me. Those conversations are to be had at home, and only I have that intimate understanding of what is and isn't appropriate for my children. Although apparently you think porn is appropriate for your children. Very, very nice, sir. Utterback was seen at another school board meeting on October 26, 2021, as part of a presentation against the school keeping the best-selling LGBTQ plus graphic memoir, Fun Home, a family tragicomic by Allison Bechtel in the school's library. A video showed him at the public meeting with Northland Parent Association President James Richmond holding up two poster board signs of pages from the book. On Friday, Richmond recalled the presentation in front of the school board, but distanced himself from Utterback and his allegations. I cannot comment on the alleged charges against him because I have no knowledge about them, and they have nothing to do with me, nor the Northland Parent Association. Utterback is scheduled to appear back in court March 10th. That was fucked up. Yeah, that's fucked up. That's this has been the... I'd like to also know the gender of the children that he's molesting as well. I mean, in some ways, that's kind of not always relevant when it comes to, you know, people who have pedophilia, pedophilia yeah. tendencies, right? But, but still, like, how fucked up would it be if it was boys? Uh, yeah, well, that's a whole other enchilada of just, like, messed upness. But regardless, oh, yeah. it's, I think, very telling when people want to ban books or protect children from books. And I think, don't get me wrong, there are definitely books that wouldn't necessarily be appropriate for children of all ages. There's mm-hmm. books that absolutely have dangerous ideas in them that are... um bad for society as a whole but i don't think those books should be banned i think it's important to be clear about what's contained in books and that knowledge is you know something that isn't necessarily ideal to teach children um, yeah. i think about like think about mind conf right it's like you shouldn't mm-hmm. have mind conf in a school library but i don't think mind conf should be banned necessarily because i think it's no. an interesting portrait of of you know a, a sick twisted mind Exactly. Anytime I read or hear about book bannings, I get a little angry and I'm like, what's wrong with this parent? I bet there's something messed up. The fact that they can't handle like their children being exposed to ideas. And then I also have the instinct to tell any kid who like goes to a school where they ban certain books is absolutely go out of your way to find that book at a bookstore and buy it and read it. Exactly. Clearly there's something that you need to read in there that people are scared for you to know. And it's funny. I looked at like, um, banned book lists, right? Half of them were part of the curriculum when I was in school. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, you look at perpetual pieces that are, are continually brought up for book bans. Like, how many times do you read about people wanting to ban books that make you uncomfortable because they they make you think about America's conflicted racial past, like Huckleberry mm-hmm. Finn or To Kill a Mockingbird? Yeah. I mean, to I To Kill have... a Mockingbird was one of those books. I hated that book. I absolutely hated that book. But, <laughs> you know, still, I don't think it should be banned. Right. And also, banning a book, banning anything in general, it just makes people want it more. Exactly. So it does the exact opposite of what you're trying to do. So if you want people not to be to be protected from books that you think aren't good influences, you got to go out of your way to make those books as boring as possible. 
Mm-hmm. You got to make it sound boring. You got to make it be like, oh, that old thing. Ugh. Anyway. So after that rant, sorry, Roasters. It was just the balls on that guy. Anyway. Well, I found it enjoyable. I'm glad. I can segue into my paranormal story for you and kind of change the change gears a little bit. A little bit. Well, segue away. All right. So today we are going to start our journey in the village of Cimarron, which has about a thousand residents. It's located in the northeastern corner of New Mexico. Uh, Cimarron is named after the Cimarron River, which runs through it. It sits on the eastern slopes of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. There's lots of large ranches around the village, including the ranch we're going to visit today, the Philmont Scout Ranch. Okay. Haunted ranches. Yep, yep. The Philmont Scout Ranch is operated by the Boy Scouts of America. They describe it as their national high adventure base. It's where scouts and their leaders can go through backpack treks and other outdoor activities in the beautiful landscape of New Mexico. Philmont Scout Ranch is huge. It covers 219 square miles or more than 140,000 acres. Most of the land is still wilderness, with most of the ranch's land being primarily mountainous with a small bit of prairie land in the eastern side of the property. Because the ranch is nestled in the Sangre de Cristo range of the Rockies, there are several mountains on the property. The highest Point is the peak of Baldy Mountain, which is located on the ranch's northwestern border. Uh, Baldy Mountain reaches an elevation of 12,441 feet above sea level. So it's a pretty tall mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say. Uh, the southern part of the ranch's property is a series of six other large, difficult peaks to scale. Uh, it's Mount Phillips, Comanche Peak, Big Red, Bear Mountain, Black Mountain, and Schaefer's Peak. And there's also a trail peak, which is popular because of its proximity to the wreckage of a B-24 bomber that crashed near its summit in 1942. Ooh, okay. It's kind of cool, actually. Like, they never bothered to bring down the wreckage that they went up and retrieved the, the bodies of the poor flight crew, but they left it up there, so it's kind of become a landmark for scouts who go hiking in this area of the ranch cool the most recognizable landmark on the ranch is the tooth of time which is a large granite monolith that reaches an elevation of nine thousand feet and the interesting thing about the tooth of time is that it's kind of located in the center southern area of the philmont scout ranch and it kind of divides those sections of the ranch so when you see the tooth of time you know you're heading towards the southern section and it's such a prominent feature of the landscape that in the 1800s when people were traveling on the santa fe trail that was a big landmark for you if you were on the trail and you saw the tooth of time that's when you know you're only about a week's travel time away from santa fe so you'd almost reach the end of your journey okay i like it Uh, The ranch is a pretty active place for the Boy Scouts of America. Each year during the peak season, which runs from June 8th through August 22nd each year, an estimated 20,000 scouts and their adult leaders trek through the extensive backcountry of Philmont Scout Ranch. 
There's over a million scouts who have visited the ranch since it was founded in the 1930s. But this area, like lots of other parts of New Mexico, has been inhabited since prehistory. Several camps on the ranch preserve or in proximity to preserved Native American archaeological sites related to the Hickoria, Apache, and Ute peoples. Okay. Again, going with the uh, large, large, large Native American population in New Mexico. Yep, exactly. The ranch itself has a pretty long history. Uh, In the 1840s, the land that would become the Philmont Scout Ranch was initially developed by uh, new Spanish settlers to raise cattle. They raised sheep and goats and also would farm some crops to feed their livestock there. Shortly after the Civil War, mineral resources were discovered in and around Baldy Mountain, and scores of gold, silver, copper, and tungsten tungsten mines opened in that area. Uh, The region around Baldy Mountain is actually known as one of the primary gold-producing districts in New Mexico to this day. Fun. Everybody loves some gold. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. In the 1920s, oil magnet and outdoors maniac Wait Phillips purchased over 300,000 acres in this area of New Mexico and turned the existing ranches that were on the land into this huge private game reserve for himself and his wealthy friends. Ah, we've seen this before. Yep, yep. Phillips had so much land that he would allow other organizations like the Boy Scout troops in, in that area of New Mexico to visit the ranch. He was so impressed at how the Boy Scouts comported themselves and how they treated the land on his ranch that in 1938, during the height of the Great Depression, he ended up donating 35,000 acres or more of his land to the Boy Scouts of America. He only had one condition for the property, and that was that it was used for the benefit of the members of the Boy Scout organization. They could basically do whatever they wanted with the land. Okay. Later in the 1930s, he donated a second larger section of land. Uh, The only requirement for this donation was that it would still be used to the benefit of the Boy Scouts of America, but that they could open competitive commercial operations on the land if they agreed to pay their own fair share of taxes on that competitive operation. Gotcha. Okay. Now, initially, the camp was named the Phil Turn Rocky Mountain Scout Camp in honor of Phillips. The scouts basically did this portmanteau of his name with the phrase good turn, as in the good turn he did them by donating the property. But Phil Turn, Rocky Mountain Scout Camp is a little bit of a mouthful. So eventually they end up changing the name of the camp to Philmont, as in, again, honoring Phillips, but all the mountains and peaks that are yeah on the ranch. Exactly. So Philmont Scout Ranch and Explorer Base is now its official name. In 1941, Phillips again decided to beef up the property that the Boy Scouts had, donating some additional acreage, which brought the total amount that he donated to the Boy Scouts to 127,000 acres. So on all of this property that the Boy Scouts own, there sits a lot of unusual activity. And one place in particular is this very large mesa that scouts and guides avoid when they are exploring the backcountry at the ranch. The reason they avoid it is mostly due to reports of really strange happenings that have been heard about for centuries regarding this mesa. The stories cover everything from 
travelers who have become lost and died atop the mesa, missing scouts and campers, and even there's a rumor to gateway to hell somewhere on the mesa. Wonderful. Just what I like to hear. Welcome to our official stop, the <laughs> Yuraka Mesa. Uh, Uraka Mesa is a reddish-hued, steep-sided mesa that rises to an elevation of 8,594 feet. The flat surface is capped by a basalt rock. Uh, it's a pretty large mesa, measuring approximately two miles long by half a mile wide. Uraka Mesa is relatively flat, with the exception of a protruding plateau. And there is a small spring at the base of this plateau. What exactly is a mesa? So a mesa is a mountain-esque thing that is flat on the top. So if you think about okay. in your head, like pictures of like the Southwest and how there'll be mountains and then there'll be the kind of it rises up and it's very flat across the top, almost gotcha. looks like okay. a table. That's a mesa. Which is why it's mesa. Okay. You got it. Because yep. I was like, Mesa means table. And I'm just like, that's all I kept thinking mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. So like, I've heard it before, but I don't know what it means. Yeah. So it's basically almost like a mountain. It's like a rise in, in a mountain range that has a flat top. And that's what Yoraka Mesa is as well. I know exactly what you're talking about now. Cool. Um, there is some vegetation in an, on and around Yoraka Mesa. It's primarily ponderosa pines. Um, and in these pines, you can find things like ancient Native American ruins covered in petroglyphs. Uh, you can also sometimes encounter wild turkeys. There have been reports of black bears and mountain lions on the mesa, but the most predominant animal to live on and around the mesa are magpies. Magpies, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, as you know, magpies are pretty noisy creatures, <laughs> and mm-hmm. they make quite an impression on the early European visitors to the area. The name Yoraka is actually Spanish for magpie, so Yoraka Mesa is magpie table, which sounds about right given the number of birds that live in the area of the mesa. Huh, okay. The thing that I thought was kind of interesting is that magpies are birds that have a pretty significant mythological uh, influence on Native American tribes as well. I did a little digging into the folklore archives and found that a lot of the southwestern and Central American indigenous tribes have stories about magpies as part of their mythology. And it kind of runs a gambit. A lot of the stories are about how the magpies are considered directional guardians leading the way and particularly associated with the East. So they'll lead lost travelers uh, back to their tribes, things like that. They're also considered a friend to humans. Uh, There's stories about the magpies winning the rights for humans to hunt buffalo or teaching them survival tips um, in the early days of mankind's existence. But then there's also stories where the magpie takes on a bit of a trickster spirit for mythologies or even downright dangerous omen spirit as well. So you have this big red mesa that rises out of nowhere, lots of crazy magpies on it, which have this like sort of initial creepiness to them. But then the weirdness kind of continues all throughout its history, going back to like the ancestral Puebloan people through to the Mexican settlers and the American cowboys that explored the Mesa, even to today's cast scouts. All of them have stories about seeing unexplained lights, strange apparitions, and just 
in generally, there's this weirdness to the mesa. And, and this weirdness actually extends to the very rock that makes it up. So below the basalt cap, the mesa is primarily composed of iron, which is why it has a reddish hue when you look at it. And the other component that makes up a lot of the mesa is magnetite, which is an ore of iron. Now, this high concentration of iron on this relatively flat, high elevation mesa results in regular lightning strikes, too. In fact, Yoraka Mesa is known for having the highest number of lightning strikes anywhere in New Mexico. Wow, okay. Yep. And that's part of the reason why the Boy Scouts don't allow camping on the mesa. It's pretty restricted unless it's out of necessity. Now, the interesting thing is that over the centuries... Geologists think that all of these lightning strikes may have resulted in the natural magnetization of the magnetite in the mesa. Basically, that would turn- make sense. Yep. Basically, turning it into a lodestone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, when you get to the top of this mesa, depending on where you're at, if there's a lot of magnet, if there's magnetized magnetite underneath you, it changes the magnetic field of the mesa. So, that means if you're trekking, all- trekking across it on a hike, all of a sudden your compass will become unreliable and you'll end up getting lost. <laughs> No. Okay. So a bad place for Boy Scouts. <laughs> yep. Yep. And other reason why they're like, eh, maybe not, maybe not Yoraka Mesa guys. Um, when visitors are on top of the Mesa in certain areas and they take photos with film, when they develop it later, they find that more often than not, the photos are distorted or splotchy because the, the magnetic field uh, causes changes to the film, the undeveloped film. The lodestone may also contribute to these reports that happen time and time again throughout the history of Yoraka Mesa, where people see this eerie blue light. A lot of times the blue light will be reported at the top edges of the mesa. So you can see it, you know, from a distance when you're not actually on the mesa, but also when you're trekking across the mesa at night along the edge of it, you'll see like a blue light. So aside from the high proclivity for lightning strikes, the wonky magnetic field, and the ghostly blue lights, there's also some topographical strangeness with the Mesa. Well, the blue light is just Kmart having a sale. <laughs> Desert Kmart. We have tumbleweeds. <laughs> we have magpies. Lots and lots of magpies. <laughs> and lightning. So it's super creepy, and I, and I checked this on some topographical maps, but uh, when you look at Yuraka Mesa from above, like on a topographical map, and you see how the uh, highest points of the Mesa come together, it looks like a human skull when you look at the western end of the Mesa. Freaky. Okay. Super freaky. Even more freaky is that the highest point of the Mesa is actually located in what would be like the skull's western eye. And according to Native American legend, that's where there's a portal to another dimension. Oh, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> In the eye of the skull on Yoraka Mesa. Yeah. Okay. Not going there anymore. All right. So here's the crazy thing, right? So when you are on the Mesa and you're near this area, anthropologists have discovered early ancestral Poblayan artifacts. Uh, sometimes you'll hear, hear this group of people referred to as the Anasazi. And at the site, they found, you know, artifacts that indicate that these people were there, but they also found these really strange petroglyphs carved into the rock. And 
the petroglyphs are strange because they fit into some Native American legends and seem to tell the story about the mesa being the site of like an epic battle between the forces of good and evil. Okay. So according to legend, an intense battle is fought on top of the mesa by the people of Earth and the evil spirits of the underworld. Humankind only barely manages to win the battle, forcing their enemies back into hell through a spot of ground on Yoraka Mesa. Following the battle, the ancient Native Americans of the area charge their most powerful medicine man with watching the doorway. And yet, that's not enough. Demons and evil spirits still manage to slip through occasionally leaving hell to hunt up poor unfortunate souls that find themselves trekking across the mesa. Now, the crazy thing is that, as I read through these stories, it turns out that the local tribes today, so the Utes and the uh, Hikarile Apaches, to, to this day find that the Mesa is like taboo. So it's sort of like, don't go to the Mesa. It's a bad place. Avoid it when you can. It's on like the list of like places to avoid for those tribes. Okay. Wow. All right. So the Yuraka Mesa Gateway to the Underworld also makes appearances in some of the other uh, local legends, specifically the Navajo legends from, from tribes in the area of New Mexico. According to the traditional Navajo story, a shaman felt something was wrong in the Mesa, so he sent out a band of warriors to investigate. Once they were there, the warriors found a short, blue, glowing being that claimed to be the last of the ancestral Puebleans who mysteriously disappeared centuries earlier. They bring this glowing being back to their shaman. The being tells the shaman about the great battle that was fought on the mesa to drive the forces of evil back to the underworld and seal the gate behind them. All the members of the being's tribe went into hell to stop the demons and save the world. One remaining member of the tribe, this being, stayed behind to seal the gate and guard the entrance. To do this, he created four cat totems to scare away the magpies. The magpies are prophesized to reopen the gates. And this shaman has been on the mesa, maintaining the seals for centuries. It all comes back to those chatty little bitches, those magpies. It does. It does. Uh, the being tells the shaman that his time is drawing to a close and charges the, the shaman with maintaining the four cat totems positioned at the four corners of the mesa. Now, here's the spooky thing. I came across a bunch of stories of people who have like camped and hiked through Yoraka Mesa who say that they've seen these cat totems. Most people say that there's only two cat totems that remain today to have been destroyed over the centuries, but definitely people still say that there are cat totems on Yoraka Mesa, keeping the magpies away from this gateway to the underworld. Interesting. Now I want to go again. <laughs> now I'm pulling you back in. All right. So contemporary reports from scouts and hikers on Yoraka Mesa today continue to be tied to this legend. A lot of visitors report that they see like dark, threatening creatures in the trees. They're described as like three feet tall, pitch black humanoid forms that kind of dart from tree to tree when you're hiking across the Mesa. Reportedly, Philmont Scout Ranch staffers are scrupulous about avoiding the mesa at night they will absolutely not cross it if they don't have to if they're forced to the advice that the staffers 
give everyone is to avoid looking in either direction. Just keep your eyes on the trail in front of you and get across the mesa as fast as you can. Uh, there's a number of ghostly encounters reported by witnesses over the years. They include things like a herd of ghostly horses that have been seen galloping across the mesa. Weird. I like it. I know. Like a bunch of ghost horses. Like that'd be startling, but like not the scariest thing I've ever heard about. I, I kind of want to ride a ghost horse. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Just to feel the, the ghostly mane brushing against your cheeks. Exactly. <laughs> Um, slightly more intimidating is the reports of a charging group of blue light glowing Native American warriors. Oh, gosh. Okay. That would be pretty spooky coming out of like the darkness of just these illuminated blue figures of, of warriors running at you. Yeah, not something I would like. And then a spirit of what witnesses say looks like a 1940s era Boy Scout who is sometimes seen crying around a campfire. When people walk up to the scout and ask him what's wrong, he says that he can't get down. He is lost. And they, when they volunteer to help him hike down the mesa, he simply whispers, I can't, and then vanishes. All righty. Okay. Thanks, Solus. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Creepy. (laughs) Um, Dragon Age joke there, guys, if you didn't get it. (laughs) Other... Visitors to the Mesa have claimed to have seen the Native American shaman from the Navajo tribe who was charged with protecting the Mesa. Sometimes they see him dressed as a old man, although he glows blue. Other times they see a glowing blue mountain lion, raven, or bear, which they interpret to be the shaman changing forms. Oh, okay, gotcha. I could see that. Sometimes they also see glowing orbs of blue light in the area of the mesa where the portal to the underworld supposedly is. Damn, okay. And I have one last legend for you, Eden, about the Uraka Mesa, and it is from the early 1900s. Okay. Now, according to Philmont Scout Ranch lore, in the early 1900s, two astronomers decided to conduct a study. They decided to study the stars from the top of the Raka Mesa and nearby Fowler Mesa. Every other day, the two men would meet to check in and compare their notes. But with each passing meeting, the Yoraka Mesa astronomer seemed to get moodier and more introspective, talking about how these unusual blue lights kept interfering with his work and it made it hard to track the stars at night. Hmm. Before long, the man just stopped showing up for the scheduled meetings. And when the other astronomer finally went to go track him down, all he found was the man's notebook, which detailed an apparent descent into madness. His notebook was a rambling journey discussing all the blue lights, the haunting blue glows, a mysterious hum, disembodied chanting, and drum beats that echo through the night. Holy shit, okay. According to most versions of the story... That very notebook is still kept in a secret area of the Philmont's headquarters. Wow. Okay. I kind of want to see this notebook. I know, right? It kind of reminds me of something out of like a like a Lovecraft story, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, Eden, what are your thoughts on, on visiting Yoraka Mesa? I really, really want to go. I mean, I'm a little terrified that all hell will literally break loose, but... <laughs> I would also just like to go. I want to see if I feel anything. I want to see if I see anything. It's definitely Mm -hmm. a very interesting spot. 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's so bizarre how it's, you know, this place of legend for all the people who've lived there over the the millennia, basically. And at the same time, there's like actual physical things that are on the mace that we know are creating phenomena. Like the, just yeah. the fact that there's so much magnetite that's that's underneath the surface and it's acting like a lodestone. I think that's absolutely fascinating, especially oh, yeah, since definitely. since most of the magnetite on Earth isn't naturally magnetized. So it's like that one place where all the lightning yeah. strikes happen. <laughs> exactly. And that could definitely account for the spiritual energy there as well. Right. If like the magnetic field is different, it might be more prone mm-hmm. to uh, seeing phenomena. Exactly. Uh, yeah, a very cool story. Yeah, I thought it was really neat. Uh, my sources for this week were Wikipedia, Mental Floss, My Strange New Mexico, Only in Your State, USC Digital Folklore Archives at folklore.usc.edu, Spirits of the Border 4, The History and Mystery of New Mexico by Ken and Sharon Hudnall, When the Sun Goes Down, a collection of Philmont ghost stories by Lori and Jared Chatterley. Very nice. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. I guess that is our show for today, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to reach out to us, you can always send us an email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. I almost forgot what it was. <laughs> you can stop by our website. Uh, we are at roadside horror show at podbean.com. You can also find us on social media. We are roadside horror show on Facebook and Instagram, and we are roadside horror on Twitter. Uh, we'd like to thank Yox Rocks Design for our logo and E Massey for our intro and outro music. Until next time, gang, creep Creep on, on, creepin' creepin' on. on.